0: he was just somebody you can trust hundred percent he never would take off if i wasn't on the wheel or he looks back and he sees me two three wheels behind him then of course he does his job um but yeah he, i he always uh, said that he gonna go uh through a brick wall for me and uh, that's what he did the whole, see- the whole career
1: G'day legends and welcome back to the Press Room podcast presented by Swift, episode seventy six, legends, and we have the gorilla on board today, Andre Greipel, the German sprinter, one of the greatest sprinters of all time, little Palmaraz Czech. Okay, he's got over a hundred and fifty wins uh, over his career, um, fifty eight or fifty nine World Tour victories. He's won eleven stages of the Tour de France. Uh, seven stages of the Giro, four of the Vuelta. The man is a machine and his 150 odd wins is, I think it's up there in the top five of all time uh, victories across professional cyclists. So um, Andre Greipel, he's one of the greats. And well, inside this episode, we talk all things sprinting. We chat about the current crop of modern day sprinters and um, and who's sort of the best in his eye at the moment uh, and taking into account the Tour de France and what's happened in the last couple of years. We talk about the evolution of sprinting and, and how sprints have changed, how the approaches of sprints have changed uh, since his day and also throughout his career. What else do we talk about? Lead outs, of course. We talk about the lead outs and also the relationship between the last man and uh, the sprinter itself, and um, you know, fans of Griper or that era will know that Griper had a really close relationship with Greg Henderson, who was his last out, last man for um, many of his career throughout his Lotto Soudal days. And um, Greg Henderson is a bit of a sprinting mastermind, and he works with uh, many of the teams these days, um, crafting their sprint teams. So. Yeah, we really unpacked quite a lot. We talk about HTC Columbia, his time there, how it compared to Lodzu Dao, where he spent most of his career, and he did share some really interesting insights. And um, yeah, a whole host of things inside this episode. I know you guys will love it. Took a couple of minutes to warm up. You know, German's a little bit, uh, you know, just a little bit slow to get going, but once he did, um, yeah, really cool, and he shared some great stories. So I know you guys are going to love this episode, but hey... A little bit of news for you legends, okay? You asked for it moons ago, episode 70. I think I brought this up. The TPR bottles. Wow. Design's done. Legends. The design is done. The order. The order is in. Okay? So they're coming. So I can only get a limited number of these bottles, right? Okay? These are elite. They are elite. Okay? Only can get a limited run. So... You've got to sign up for the like the pre-sale thing, okay? And just to do that, you've got to go to the website, which is in the description. I'll also share it on um, my Instagram. It's everywhere, tprcyclingnews.com. Scroll down the bottom, and you just put your email in, and then I'll know that you're keen to get a bottle, and you'll get first hit. So as soon as they get in the garage, basically, or the warehouse, aka okay, my single garage, um, I will email you, and you'll be able to get your hands on the tpr bottles these won't be ever released again these are limited i'm talking like the gold foil tarzo in the neutral game box that's how rare these are so if you want them um yeah head to the website put your name down in the contact form and uh well you'll be first to receive the info for when they go live which will be very very soon um so yeah check that out also what else is happening Zwift, well, you've seen it, Zwift are uh, just popping off on the socials at the moment because the Tour de France Fams is coming up next week, uh, 27th, I believe. Uh, Watch the Fams hashtag. It's going to be amazing. Make sure you tune in to all that racing, guys. Uh, Absolutely um, incredible. I did a really great podcast with Beth Doria, who is the DS of Canyon SRAM, and we talked about everything to do with the team and women's cycling. That's coming during the tour, so look out for that one and it's just going to be really exciting there's lots of new riders coming up that will be unveiled throughout the tour de france so make sure you're watching with that um attacker you know what to do guys uh cr dash the press room for 15 percent off get your winter kit really nice long bibs actually Um, they've got a pair of long bibs right And the the ankle cuff, so that sort of bottom 30 centimetres of material on the long bibs is not your normal cycling lycra material, that fleecy lycra. It's actually a wetsuit material at the bottom cuff, and it's a really nice design um, of keeping that the sock part dry, um, because you know what it's like. As soon as that water starts to seep in, you feel it in the sock and then in the shoe. Well, it's all over. And I think that design on the long bibs, oh, it's critical. So if you're after some of those, I would recommend them. Um, Really, really good product. And, of course, Smith Optics. Can't forget them. Um, All these sponsors guys, they've been with the podcast for a long time now. And you guys supporting uh, me by shopping with their kit and and going on Zwift and and buying Smith and buying Attacker, It really, it directly supports the podcast. And it means that I can continue making these amazing um, podcasts. I mean, that's too horn but making these podcasts for you guys so you can enjoy. But um, yes, also at the end of this podcast, we'll do a little bit of transfer news. Got some inside goss with regards to Remco and also one other Aussie, uh, Aussie sprinter, actually, who may be on the move. All right, legends. I hope you enjoy this one. Send me a message if you did. Share it with a mate. Leave a review. And I'll see you on the next episode. So I, um, I was looking at some of uh, some of your statistics and I noticed that last year on, on First Cycling Stats, it says that you raced some cyclocross and you beat Niels Pollard. Yeah. Love it. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for one hour, it was fine for me. Was that your first cyclocross race?
0: No, no, no. I've done uh, also world championships under 23 until 2004.
1: I was racing uh, cyclocross. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. Back then in 2004, was, was cyclocross, um, you know, was it as as big as it is now?
0: In Germany, not. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I just used it for preparation towards the road season.
1: So, um, obviously, you know, we have a pretty big Australian following here. And uh, that's one thing I guess I wanted to touch on first was, uh, in your career andre you had you spent a lot of time in australia racing um many you know many editions of the of turn under 18 stages even won the gc which is which is pretty special but i wondered um why did you keep coming back and and making the the australian summer last part of your season
0: uh, let's say I always had some, some good memories, always there. And actually this race made me as a bike rider uh, mm. where I first uh, got uh, the chance uh, as a pro uh, together with Alan Piper as a sport director in that time. Uh, and from there on, I just uh, love to be there. Uh, that's why I kept coming back. And uh, of course, also the team always wanted me to start there to yeah, get the pressure off by... Having early victories, as they they thought so, that I can do some early early victories there.
1: Hmm. Did it take the pressure off winning, having those early season wins, even if they're sort of smaller in nature when you compare them to some of the other victories you've had?
0: Yeah, for I just can speak from from my point of view as a Belgium in the Belgium team. you always. If you haven't won yet, uh, you always had some pressure coming into the opening weekend, and uh, also Perennis and all this stuff. And uh, if if they don't start nagging you there by 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 telling you oh you didn't win yet blah blah blah, it was good to to start there. Plus, uh, it's also nice to train there in 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 the Adelaide Hills. Oh yeah. You, I always saw it as a training camp. Uh, of course, we always had these uh, races, but they were not that exhausting that you always could do some some extra hours afterwards or before.
1: Absolutely. It's a, it's a big thing for us Australians and a big pilgrimage. We go from all over all over the, the country to go and watch uh, the racing and ride around Adelaide uh, in January. Now, I've heard a few times, I've been in another many times for working at the race and then just as a fan, and um, I've, I've heard back in the day, maybe not so much now, but back in the day, there used to be some pretty decent after parties at the TDU. And I wondered, is that true or false? Oh, of course, uh, when you have,
0: have time to have a party, uh, after the last day, uh, we always made some Belgian culture there, I went into the Belgian beer cafe in Adelaide. <laughs> And of course, afterwards we had this barbecue in uh, in Hilton, and then afterwards we we maybe went to a club or something. But never that exhausting, uh, as we had to travel back also the day after. And uh, yeah, mm. but the parties were always good. Yeah. Mm.
1: Okay, that's yeah, fair enough. Um, back to just that getting those early wins on the board. I've always noticed with with sprinters, particularly sprinters um, throughout their career, uh, the best of the best. Often, it seems like uh, they go in their their confidence and their wins comes in waves. And it seems like being a sprinter is very much about having that confidence in yourself. And uh, it can be hard to get it back if you lose it. But also once you do have it, you can get a bit of momentum. And throughout your career, um, you had you know, plenty of roller coasters, but it was very steady. But would, is that fair to say that sort of confidence is really important with sprinting or did you not really feel that way?
0: Uh, I would I would take it to, to the whole team. Uh, I think when, when it comes down from victories from January until October, we were the most decent team, I would say. We were always competitive as a, as a train together. Uh, but of course, you get confidence by winning. Uh, the whole team got confidence, and we always said that uh, when we start good in two and under, they they gonna they gonna respect you the whole year. So uh, everybody is watching this this race there because uh, it's the start of the of the new season. And everybody recognize gonna everybody who knows the racing there, they know okay, these guys are strong, and uh, then they always need to uh, never uh, uh, never uh, put us down. Or uh, sometimes they always give us also this little bit of more space plus. They see our order and they always knew, okay, if Marcel Zeebeck is coming, okay, Jürgen rollands is coming. If Jürgen rollands is coming, we make space for Henderson. And if Henderson came, uh, then Greipel will be on the wheel. So it made us uh, just, just good as a team and uh, get the confidence there together.
1: Mm. Now, you've already sort of started talking about it, but that's something that I wanted to ask about. You've been in some really um formidable teams in your career t-mobile to start hcc columbia high road we all know that sort of um amazing setup uh short setup and then of course lotto um and of the, the different names it was called you were there for the longest but i wondered um i guess in those uh those teams of all the teams you raced at which team was the one that felt most like home and why
0: I would definitely say that it was a lot of sudden. Um it, It's been eight years uh, that we were there, but we always kept the core of the team together. Uh, plus, there was no new sport director or anything. We we kept together as a whole team, and it felt like a family. Plus, uh, it's the, the also Belgium, so the motherland of cycling, and. Uh, once, once you've been racing for Belgium team, you just see cycling from a different angle. As uh, yeah, it's 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 in their mother milk for uh, yeah. for the whole spectators and all, the whole people who are living in in Belgium. They just recognize uh, these racing and plus all the teams and riders. It's it's a crazy country, and uh, of course, sometimes it's also not easy uh, to be in the Belgium team, but. Still, uh, I got to know cycling uh, in a different way than I had uh, before.
1: Hmm. Okay, and um, maybe to compare, uh, say, your time at HCC Columbia uh, or High Road, and and Lotto, were there any differences in maybe how the team was uh, was run, was organized, or any sort of notable differences between, yeah, HCC Columbia and your time at Lotto? Uh, I would say that uh, HTC Columba
0: we plus T-Mobile when uh, Bob Seven took over, uh, we were always this this small percentage better than the others because we we started to make the difference by uh, putting the, the best material on the, on the on the pavement plus uh, also starting really working with uh, what measuring measurement, Core training, uh, all this stuff. Uh, so that made us that made us an advantage compared to the others. Uh, by going to the Belgium team, of course, they I always said that they were a bit old school, uh, but in a good way. Yeah. Um, but they were were also open to bring the new stuff into the into the team, which they they really fast made possible. And, and that was nice, of course, uh, as we, we, of course, we had good riders, but we also wanted to have uh, the best material material around. Um, and, yeah, they, they made it possible.
1: Hmm. And when those um, new materials and new sort of technologies and training methods were being introduced at, at Lotto, who were the ones introducing them? Was it the riders, um, sort of getting it from maybe other teams or other riders they've talked to, or was it team staff? And if it, and next to that, uh, did it kind of have to be okayed by yourself? You obviously the team leader throughout the majority of your time there. Was that kind of was there an element of if there was something new they'd have to see? You know, what does Andre think? Uh,
0: we had this trainer uh, Sebastian Weber um
1: he
0: he just we always called him the uh, the data collector doctor (laughs) so uh, yeah i think that name oh directly says everything but he was really scientific and still he is super scientific and uh, one of the best trainers out there Uh, but he brought into the teams a lot of knowledge um and I, I took him over also uh, to Lotto Sudal to directly put some new training methods in the in the training um, and also yeah teaching the trainers uh, to to bring them on the on a good path, I would say. Um, and t- material wise, um, of course, we are always uh, let's say with HTC Colombia they didn't care about sponsors because. They said, okay, today we have a flat stage, so we put the 808 in. Uh, if it's silly day, we put the lightweights in. So they didn't care about sponsorships. Hmm. So we always had the best material for the specific day. Um, but with uh, with the other teams, of course, you are connected to the sponsors. And that made it not always easy to, to have the best material. Yeah. Uh, I remember my first Tour de France, uh, we were on Canyon and uh, we had Ritchie compounds um, and and especially stem, uh, but it was not stiff enough for me, uh, connected to the bike and and fork etc. So I was just asking them to really reinforce the fork plus the stem and Ritchie in that time they promised a new stem coming out, but they didn't pass the tests. So Canyon made a they were drilling a stem which was weight. Of uh, of 450 grams or something, <laughs> so super heavy, <laughs> but the bike was super stiff from that moment on, and I I was racing actually with a drill stem. Uh, wow. But from there on, uh, I knew it goes in the right direction. Now Canyon, of course, is uh, one of the best bikes out there, but in that time, uh, it wasn't really that stiff. Uh, mm yeah, there were always some small small
1: things we could uh, adapt and, uh,
0: yeah, the, the sponsors made it possible.
1: Mm, that's really fascinating. Um, across your uh, sprinting career and maybe, um, you know, during those real peak years, say 2008, 2018, um, were there any, like, I guess of all the sprints you were contesting and winning, did you notice across that sort of period um how maybe sprints were changing uh, were they being one in a different way were they faster were they more was there anything that was changing across the sprints um that you noticed or you, that you can remember
0: of course uh when you have a fast sprinter you want to lead them out uh, plus you need to have the guys to make a, a train possible and uh, but you need to also have the the horsepower so when I was starting, uh, we I, I did the leadouts outs for, for guys like Giolec or Kevin Dish. Uh, but I always had in my head that I can be as good as them. So we called it always the B team uh, where we were racing next to the A team, which yeah. took part in the Tour de France. But we did all the other races. And I also won uh, with, the, with the team together 2023 20, races. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, as a B team, we went over to the to Lotto Sudal, so we kept the call together there uh, because I knew how strong the guys were. Uh, so mm-hmm. let's say with HTC times we had one train, mm-hmm. then uh, we started to compete with Lotto Sudal next to them. So there were two teams, but uh, from time to time there were coming more and more teams who were trying to make leadouts. Yeah. So there's just a certain amount of space on the road, which started to get messy, and uh, then you have the GC guys uh, p- putting their elbows out to to also give, try to defend their space. What what was normal, but uh, yeah, now it just. Uh, it's, it, from there on, it started to get more and more messy. Plus, guys took more and more risk, uh, and then, of course, it also got faster because everybody wanted to be up there in front, and that—that um, that was uh, the start of the of these times mm. where it just started to get faster and more messy.
1: Mm. Now, Andre, do you have kids?
0: Yeah, two two kids
1: and you had your first child when you were um when you were racing yeah, yeah yeah did when you had after you had your first child did uh anything change in your in your mind when with regards to sprinting i've heard that from a previous rider i can't remember who it was but they did say that once they had their first child they sort of approached sprinting maybe not going in 99% but they just had a little bit more concern, I suppose, for, for, you know, those sort of messy sprints sometimes.
0: No, not at all. Uh, it made me actually, I was more motivated when oh. my first father got born. Uh, I was also still young, so I, I was just motivated and wanted to get professional in that time. And uh, so, yeah, that that was okay. how it was. But of course, when the second Second uh, daughter was born, you started to really think a bit more. Uh, you have more and more, uh, yeah, no. how you say,
1: uh, uh I, I don't know the word in English now, I think we know what you're trying to say. <laughs> more like sort of yeah, yeah. <laughs> more caution. You yeah more responsibility
0: that's what uh, I wanted to say uh, okay, okay um and of course then you have a hard crash uh, of course you use you, you think twice if you break now or not yeah, yeah. Uh, and and yeah after you come back from an injury mm. you' always needed your time to really be the normal guy again
1: mm, okay now uh Back to the lead-outs, one man who you spent a lot of time of your career with sort of side-by-side side, uh, was Greg Henderson as your sort of final man in the lead-out. And, you know, in the last three years, I would say the last three years, there seems to be a lot more um, light shown on the, on the final man, the final lead-out man these days. I think your skills are being highlighted and maybe celebrated a bit more than maybe they used to, um, but it might be recency um, bias. But I wondered... Greg Henderson was a terrific lead out, but um, what do you think it was about Greg and yourself, your relationship as a, as a team? Um, what do you think it was about you guys that made you such a successful combination with respect to the rest of the lead out?
0: Of course, you always need to, need to have this private connection, uh, I would say. We, we were also friends, or we are still friends off the bike, nice. have a lot of contact uh, still. But I would say the crazy Kiwi I always called him uh, was uh, was also just he was super good. He always knew to how to to find his way in the in the leadouts and in the finals. But he was also uh, yeah just as good as the guy in front of him sometimes because we we it was good if I had a good lead out of him. But if the train in front of him was not there, we just didn't feel the same when uh, winning with a, with a whole train together.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, but yeah, it, he was just somebody you can trust 100%. He never would take off if I wasn't on the wheel or he looks back and he sees me two, three wheels behind him. Then, of course, he does his job. Um but yeah, he, I, he always uh, said that he's going to go uh, through a brick wall for me. And uh, that's what he did
1: the whole, the whole career. Mm, that's so good. Did you used to, at the Tour de France or any Grand Tour, um, were you always rooming together?
0: No, uh, I was always with uh, Master Siebeck. Uh, oh, he was this. Yes. We knew each other since we are uh, 12 so uh yeah that was the guy i, I roomed with but of course uh, sometimes uh when you were at different races uh, we also went together in the room
1: mm, okay um do you still follow uh, professional cycling now do you watch the racing
0: i have to uh because i'm a national coach of the professional side uh, now in germany so yeah, I, I have to follow.
1: <laughs> I didn't know that. I should have known that. That's uh that's awesome. That is fantastic. Um well I wondered uh, what do you make of uh the, the the Tour de France at the moment? And it seems to me the last 18 months, the, the the crop of the top sprinters, I mean you could throw a blanket over six or seven of them, there's quite a, a large um, group who are of similar ability and I wondered what are your thoughts on the current crop of sprinters competing at the moment
0: uh, it's just crazy how many uh, okay Philipson in this Tour de France put the stamp uh, on the Tour de France sprints at the moment mm. but before you could see that uh, there's not there wasn't one sprinter who, who always won mm. uh, so it just shows how how close everybody is uh, in 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 their in their sprinting view at the moment mm. uh, but when i see the sprints uh, it's also uh, uh, really good for jasper at the moment to have that strong lead out uh, by having single dam, uh, of course thunderpool like uh, jonas uh, rigard they were they are they were really strong before but i think this single dam uh, and and uh, Søren Grau, Andersen, um, as you can see in the Tour de France, they nearly put it on the road every day, every sprint again to to line it up. And especially in this speed, the, all the sprints are going at the moment. It's pretty pretty rare that there's just one team who always can line it up again, uh, which is which is good for them. But it helps Jasper also to, to get delivered to the line.
1: Mm, that's that's a good point. And I think a lot of people are seeing Vanderpol in that final man role at the moment. And he's done a terrific job uh leading out Phillips and he's just got that that nice turn of speed that's perfect for the second last man. But I think um Vanderpol is not really very good in uh the you know, the real hectic nature of, of the final sort of three or four K. And I think guys like Soren Crow and Singledam, they're perfect for positioning Vanderpoel first. And I think without those guys in position three and four, um, I think Vanderpoel would actually find it hard to get to that final position to lead out Philipson. What do you think about that? I wouldn't I wouldn't agree because uh, I've
0: been racing also with Vanderpoel before and he's really good uh in in finding that his way through through the bunch uh you can see all the classics he's always there where he has to be mm-hmm. uh, and i think he had these skills uh, from Sickle Cross uh, and mountain bike and all these things uh so it's, you just can bring it down to the horsepower they have in the team and uh, they are the
1: strongest Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know it better. Vanderpol is. Yeah, he's a big. Uh, he's a big star. He can do it all. Um. Of all those riders, of all the sprinters, I mean, there's a whole host of them: Groves, Phillips, and Phillipsen, uh, Ewan. There's so many. Cav. Who at the moment excites you the most? And is there a German sprinter that's got your uh twinkle in your eye?
0: Oh. Uh. I was really happy to see Kev winning in, in Giro, and I was sure that he's gonna win also on the Tour de France. Yeah. Uh, it would have been just uh, nice to that he could stop his career like that. Um, but yeah, like like before this, uh, I, I've I told this already a lot of times before this. Pure sprinters like uh, there's just Groneweg and Jacobsen left, who have the. The body weight for a real sprinter, yeah. but all the other sprinters they are climbing really well. They get really, they are really fast, aerodynamic as well, uh, and yeah, Jasper Philipson for me will be the guy to get to to beat in the in the future. Mm. Uh, plus, he also climbs really well and does classics also really good. Uh, yeah, but that shows also that how, how cycling has changed how. How good you need to be in in everything at the moment to to be up there for getting the results.
1: Mm. Yeah, Philipson's um, ride at Roubaix was really something else. Um, I mean, that was yeah, amazing, amazing ride. I mean, you finished in the top ten in Roubaix yourself, Andre. You were seventh one year. Yeah,
0: seventh.
1: Oh, that's pretty special. I love that. You yeah, know, there there used to be on the online sort of uh forums about cycling on Reddit we always used to celebrate you anytime you went in the breakaway or tried to attack on uh at the Tour of Flanders for example or when you went to go on the breakaway we would always be chatting online about it it was <laughs> it was one of the things we loved to see <laughs> yeah i
0: i never had so many opportunities to to race like i always wanted to race uh but it was always fun let
1: me go say Okay, um, final question. All right, and I had three lined up for you, but I'll pick maybe the one that I was most interested to hear. And I'd love to know what was your most satisfying victory. You won so many—eleven Tour stages, you know, four Vuelta, seven Giro, a whole host of others. But what was your most satisfying victory, and why?
0: Uh of course, I could name now, Champs Elysees, or. Mm-hmm or winning in Madrid in the world. Uh, But I got this question asked a lot, but uh, there's just one victory who always comes up in my mind, which was none of mine. Um, And that was the win from Philippe Gilbert uh, in my first ever uh, Tour de France. And that was just so special to me because... uh, it was my childhood dream just to be there in the Tour de France. Uh, by, by changing the teams, I made it possible to be there. Uh, and then on that day, uh, I crashed kilometer minus five, so in the neutral zone. And I was on the doctor's car, kilometer zero, put bandages on, and I started already fucked up the Tour de France. Uh, but then we made just such an Tremendous uh, job uh, to deliver him in, in in that final kicker, and he won it. And um, there's, I won so many races, but they never give me that much goosebumps like this one from Gilbert. By by hearing him winning, I I crossed the finish line with goosebumps, and uh, that was one of the most special uh, memories. Uh, I always name when somebody asked me about what was uh, your best win and it was not my my win it was the one from Philippe Gilbert because it was just so special my first ever Tour de France uh, delivers uh, deliver a teammate by winning a stage and having the yellow jersey in in the in the hotel which uh, was just special in my first ever Grand Tour uh, in my first ever Tour de France.
1: legends that's another episode of the press Room podcast done and dusted i really hope you enjoyed that one andre was uh so cool to talk to right he's one of um the legends of the sport and i was super privileged to chat with him and um you know the og listeners will know i tried to get him on over a year ago and um, i thought i'd just hit him up again and it worked super super cool legends Thank you for listening. A little bit of transfer gossip, right? The Remco news that I was hinting at over the last few episodes. Well, it's all coming to light now, isn't it? It is all coming to light. What do you reckon? Remco, quick step, he's gone. He is gone. Now, the main sticking points are here, right? So in the newsletter, which I've been sending out, uh, its first newsletter's out. So if you subscribe to the mailing list or you've you've, uh, signed up to the pre-sale of the bottles, you'll also get this newsletter. Um, this outlines some of these things that I've talked about with Remco, okay? So the sticking points for him trying to move away from Quickstep. First things first, money. He's not happy with what he's getting paid. He's definitely getting paid under, around about the 4 million mark euro a season has been quoted. Now, I think that's including bonuses and also maybe some of his um, his personal uh, deals, like with Domino's, for example, or Pizza Hut. I don't know what it is, Pizza Hut. Um, I think his actual base salary without bonuses is around that 2, 2.5. Now, someone like Bogacha, uh he's earning that 7 to 8 mil a season. Now, there's only a very small amount of riders that can win grand tours and challenge for, mon- for, challenge for monuments. There's only 4 or 5 and uh, remco happens to be one of those so he needs to be earning as max as much as he can right and so he's not happy with what he's earning at quickstep who traditionally pay under they don't have a huge budget they tend to leverage the success of their team to lure in their stars and say look we don't need you it's our team that's strong if you want to be part of a winning team you've got to get paid under and um, that's how they keep the ball rolling right but now He's not so happy with that funding and he wants to get his uh, yeah he wants to get his cake, right? So it's really interesting because Remco's dad is his manager. Not sure if that's the best call. maybe when he was a junior it was, but now, maybe not so much. The second part is Remco supposedly is not happy with the future of Quickstep. Now if you go on first cycling stats right, you can look at who's contracted to Quickstep for 2024. Now, if you go and look at that, you'll see there's nine riders who have a contract for next year. Only nine out of 30. Now, if you go to 2025, the following year, there's only three. Now, if you are Remco, you want to see a nice core of 10 to 11 riders who are strong, a strong core of riders who are contracted long term. Because obviously, he wants to win the Tour de France, and he needs that strong core of riders with him. Um, for the next three to four years. And I think he's probably, him and his management are probably looking at that saying, you haven't really got any long-term deals with a strong core of riders. How am I supposed to you know, commit the next three or four years trying to win the Tour when I can't see who I'm working with for the next, um, yeah, during that period? And if you think about Ineos, yes, they've lost many of their young riders in the past month and will be departing at the end of this year. But if you actually look at all the riders who are still there at Ineos, you will see an extremely strong Tour de France core, domestic, um team. And if you just slot Remco in there, suddenly that Tour de France team for Ineos looks very, very strong. And remember, Jim Ratcliffe, the owner of Ineos, to only two months ago, he's bidding $5 billion for Manchester United. The man wants to win the Tour de France and buying out Remco's 12 million euro contract, uh, what's left of it, and then maybe giving him probably eight to nine, maybe even 10 million a season, that's pennies for this guy. And he just wants the tour. So anyway, that's a bit of gossip. The second bit of gossip for you guys is Caleb Ewan looking to leave Lotto. You would have seen his team and his manager's uh criticizing his exit from the tour and his attitude during the race um, once he left that is super unprofessional from the lotto management and it obviously um, something's boiled to that point and it's clear um, both parties actually want to leave and they're looking at trying to break the contract. Now the one team that I believe uh, is probably the most suited at the moment um, given structures in place with other teams is Israel Premier Tech and The owner or the team manager at Israel is a very close friend of Caleb Ewan and is interested to see if they can get the deal done. So when you look at those teams and you think about um, Israel Primatech, they don't really have a sprinter, do they? And they could definitely do with someone like Ewan and also afford his contract demands. So legends, that's a bit of gossip for you. Let me know what you think. Remco, should he go to Ineos? Little Trek and and Israel are also interested in him. Should he stay? What do you think he's worth? Um, let's see. But anyway, thanks for listening. This was episode 76. It was Andre Greipel. I'll see you on the